we're going to be reading in Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. Um, if you are using the Pew Bibles, it's in, on page 858. So, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, good morning, church. I want to begin this morning by reading some words of an old friend. He, he was, for years, wanting to be a missionary to Japan. And for the first few years of marriage to his wife, she wasn't quite sure. And so there were these wrestlings and lots of conversations, lots of prayers. And at, at one point, he came to a spot where he wanted to express his heart in a letter to his wife. Came to be known between them as a kind of second proposal. Here's just a brief part. Catherine, I am asking you to go with me. Let's go. Or at least let's do everything in our power to go. The Lord may see fit to keep us here, but if he doesn't, let's go. It may cost us much, but would you have it any other way? Whatever we lose will be worth it if we gain more of Christ. I believe the Lord is sending us. I'm asking you to trust God's sovereign guidance and care. He will be with us, and he will go before us. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. We will dwell with him forever, wherever we dwell for this life. You will never be without your God and your Savior. I read that because one of the driving forces in my friend's life that led him to write a letter like that is the topic of the sermon this morning. We're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. You can hear how sovereignty played in in, in what I read. He said, I am asking you to trust God's sovereign guidance and care. For my friend, missions made sense because God is sovereign. And it did for her too, because when she read that letter, she said, let's go. And they started on, you know, the long journey toward getting to Japan. I don't know what everyone's experience is in this room this morning with the sovereignty of God. I'm sure it's various. Maybe some people in here don't know yet what the word sovereignty really means. Maybe you just have a vague idea. We're going to get there really soon. 
hang with me if that's you. But whatever your experience is, my hope, my aim this morning is that we would grasp a little bit more clearly just what God's sovereignty is and then also grasp how it might lead us to live in ways that we never would otherwise if there were no sovereign God. The sovereignty of God may send you across the world or across your street. It may open up your home to to the desperate and to the needy. It may lead you to do things that seem crazy to those around you. And then when things go really badly and when life hurts most, the sovereignty of God may then become your sweetest comfort your best defense, your strongest refuge. So it may lead you to try great things for God and then be your sweetest balm when things feel so hard. We're gonna be looking at Acts 4, what Emily read, but before we do, I just wanna try to describe, define, what do we mean when we're talking about the sovereignty of God? When I say God is sovereign, I mean that God rules over this world in such a way that nothing happens outside of his good and wise will. That nothing in this world happens outside his good and wise plan. There's this old catechism, uh, 450 years old. It puts it like this. All things in this world come to us not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. That's what we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God. And I should say at the outset that there's been nothing like the sovereignty of God, no truth that has shaken me more in the past, nothing that's made me wrestle more with God's word, nothing that has filled my mind with so many questions, some of which I I haven't answered and don't think I'll be able to answer this side of heaven. But through it, And on the other side of that, those wrestlings, those questions, there's been a great strength in me, in my life, and a sweetness that has come from embracing, welcoming this truth of God's sovereignty, as has been true for so many here. So we're going to try in this, you know, one sermon to show that the sovereignty of God is both biblical and good, true and sweet. But if you leave here... And this is maybe new for you, difficult for you. If you leave here with a lot of questions, big questions feel unsettling. It's not strange. And a lot of people, myself included, would be glad to follow up, talk. You can come find me after the gathering. We can plan a time to meet and talk more about it. Should I use this thing? Yeah? Okay. Um, I'm going to keep this on still. <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass myself pulling this up right now. Okay. Uh, you all can hear me okay? Okay, great. So, Acts 4. The apostles Peter and John, they've just been arrested for preaching Jesus and then released, okay? They've also been told not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus anymore, under threat of imprisonment or maybe worse. And then we pick up the story in verse 23. So look with me. When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. So as soon as Peter and John tell their friends, the church, what happened, they, they go to God. They pray, which is awesome, a lesson in itself. But even better than that is how they pray. Do you notice, as Emily was reading, you can look now, do you notice where their first request comes in this prayer? Anybody see it? They don't ask God to do anything until verse 29, which is five verses. Okay, they're not thinking in verses, but just a few sentences after they have only been remembering what, what God has done and who God is. And this happens in the place of, of pain. This is a desperate prayer. Do you do that ever? It's not the only way to pray. There are lots of psalms that just come right out of the chute. Help me, God. But sometimes what we need to do in pain is, is set that aside for a sec and force ourselves to say, this is who you are, God. This is what you have done. And then I'm going to pray my desperation under that truth. That's a different sermon we're not going to go deeper into that, though I'd love to. For now, we're going to focus on what these believers say about God. What do they say? Because as they remember who God is, they focus in, they narrow in on one attribute in particular. You can see it there in the very first word of their prayer. Sovereign Lord. This is a prayer about the sovereignty of God, filled with the sovereignty of God. And what we're going to see in their prayer, two things. Just how sovereign our God is, the extent of his sovereignty, and we're also going to see why it matters. They're going to do the, these two things in the very same prayer. They're going to confess how sovereign God is, and they're also going to show us what difference it makes. It's not going to stay in theory, but it's going to get practical. So that's the outline of our sermon. First, we're just going to talk how sovereign is God, and then how do we apply it? How do they teach us to apply it? So three layers of God's sovereignty in this prayer that show how sovereign he is. First, notice how these believers celebrate God's sovereignty over creation. Look at the rest of verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they go back to the beginning here, don't they? They go back to Genesis 1 and remember that the sovereign Lord they pray to is the one who made everything. And yet, if we're going to actually get inside their skin a little bit, we need to go a step further because when the scriptures talk about the sovereignty of God over creation, they emphasize not only that he made everything, but also that he sustains everything. It's not as if he spoke in the beginning and then stopped speaking. As Hebrews 1.3 puts it, God upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not just at the beginning, but every moment, our God speaks, and because he speaks, the universe remains. I hope that there are some people in here who, who like science. Uh, I think I have the science knowledge of about a third grader. I'm nervous for my boys to start asking me how stuff works. <laughs> but I think science is really cool. And the, the word of God gives us good reason to search out, like, what's this world like? How does it work? How did God make it? But here's the thing. 
If you explain everything you can about photosynthesis and gravity and magnetic attraction and a whole bunch of other stuff that I know the names of but don't know much more than that, what will you find at the bottom of it all? You will find a sovereign God who upholds the world by his power, by the word of his power. If you've been reading along in Matthew in our Bible reading plan, you'll remember, what does Jesus say? He says that it's ultimately God who makes the sunrise and the rainfall. It's ultimately God who clothes the flowers and who feeds the birds. And you can't even go to the farthest corner of this world and find a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the will of God. The God we serve is sovereign over creation. It's the difference between waking up into a world that runs by machinery and necessity to waking up in a world. You ever think that God raises the sun like a parent might come into your room and flip the light on and say, good morning? This is a personal world, a world where God reigns sovereign over creation. And now we're going to go a layer deeper. The They're going to take us a layer deeper. Would you look at verses 25 to 27? We're going from creation now to history. Sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Stop there for a minute. I have to think that when some people looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, they couldn't help but see it as an utterly meaningless tragedy. If there is a sovereign God in heaven, then surely that wouldn't happen. But what do the believers see? Does anyone know what they are quoting from in verses 24 and 25? Psalm 2. They go back a thousand years, a thousand years, to the words of David in Psalm 2, where God himself foreshadowed the events of Good Friday. So when all these people, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, when they gathered together to crucify Jesus, what were they doing? They were fulfilling God's script. They were accomplishing God's plans. They didn't know it, but they were bringing to pass what he had planned, what he had prearranged, what he had predestined, these believers say. He is the God, the prophet Isaiah says, who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, who says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So God is sovereign over history. Third layer. These believers are going to take us to an even deeper area of God's sovereignty. And we tread cautiously here because we're entering into a mystery where human words just kind of struggle. But if we're reading this passage carefully, and if we read the rest of scripture carefully, 
then we'll see that God is sovereign not only over creation and not only over history, but also in some way over human sin. Verses 27 and 28, look with me. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So why did all of these people conspire against Jesus? On the one hand, you might say that Herod, he had eyes only for power. And Pilate feared people more than God. And the Roman Gentile soldiers were cruel. And the peoples of Israel didn't want a savior who would confront them in their sins. And all of that would be true. All of it. They chose, all these groups chose to kill Jesus. And so when the scriptures talk about them, it talks about them as guilty, as responsible, as blameworthy. And the same thing is true when scripture talks about us in our sins. We choose to do this, guilty, responsible, blameworthy. But notice at the same time what the believers say so boldly in verse 28. Yes, all these groups acted sinfully, but at the very same time, they did, quote, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So nothing about the cross of Jesus was an accident. Every detail of it. Do you remember in the Gospels just how often, especially in the Passion, Jesus is saying, this is to fulfill the Scripture. This is to fulfill the Scripture. Which means that somehow God is sovereign over sin and we at the very same time are responsible for our sin. And this is just really what got me years ago when I was first learning about this stuff. This is what kept me up at night. This is what nagged me and made my head hurt. Nothing, I don't think, has caused me more spiritual angst and even at times anguish than trying to put the pieces of this together, how at the very same time God is sovereign and I'm responsible. Let me offer a principle that has proved to be a lifeline for me when it comes to this kind of thing. It's fairly simple, but it's shaped deeply how I approach the Bible and how I study God's character, okay? Here's, here's the principle. When you encounter two truths in Scripture and you have no idea how to put them together, you have no idea how they are both true at the same time, resist the impulse to downplay or to deny one of them so that it makes sense in your mind and so that it fits into your present mental categories. And instead, pray that God, by his word, would make new categories in your mind. Pray that he would rebuild your sense of what is possible. We already do this, actually, if you think about it. I, Pastor Sam's sermon from last week. If you're a Christian, then you already believe that God is one. And at the very same time, in another sense, God is three. Three persons in one God. And then here, similarly, in Acts 4, God's word is presenting to us two truths that we might think are incompatible. 
Human beings are responsible for sin, and at the very same time, God reigns sovereign over all. And then if we want to add another one, at the very same time, God never sins. He's always good. And trying to fit all that in your head can make your head hurt. But I also know that if you embrace it, if you welcome these truths to go into your mind and start renovating, start breaking down some walls and building new rooms and creating a place where your mind submits to scripture totally rather than you asking scripture to submit to your mind, then there is a strength and a sweetness that comes from this truth that God is sovereign over all things. And it will begin to shape how you live. This is probably a lot of us, we've came to sovereignty in a classroom or in just this kind of like theoretical debate, you know? (laughs) Not these believers. It was practical to the core for them which is where we're going next. What happens? What might happen if the doctrine of God's sovereignty, this truth that he's sovereign over all, went down deeper into our bones? And if we lived all of life under the sovereign Lord of Acts chapter four. Sovereign over creation, over every galaxy and every molecule. Sovereign over history, such that Daniel can say, he sets up kings and he removes kings. Sovereign even over human sin so that no wickedness is rogue in this world operating in a way that God, God's hands are tied. What might happen? Three lessons from this passage. Number one, God is sovereign, so pray boldly. God is sovereign, so pray boldly. When some people hear about God's sovereignty, that's like one of the first sometimes responses or objections. It's like, why would we even pray if God works out everything sovereignly according to his plan? What's our prayers going to do? Which makes sense on one level. It's understandable at least. It's just not the way the church responds in Acts 4. What are the believers doing in our passage when they call God sovereign Lord? They're not teaching his sovereignty They're not debating his sovereignty. They are praying his sovereignty. For them, the sovereignty of God wasn't a reason not to pray, but a reason to pray all the more. Why? Why? Because they knew something about God and his sovereignty that's really easy to forget or neglect when you're focusing on sovereignty. They knew that God is sovereign, but not only sovereign. God is also near. God is also personal. He speaks and he listens. He draws near to us and he responds to prayer such that the Apostle James can say, you do not have because you do not ask. Not you do not have because God hasn't sovereignly willed that you not have. But instead, God draws near to us in such a deeply personal way. He is at the very same time sovereign and near and Somehow, in a way far beyond our understanding, he works everything together that we pray into his sovereign plan, okay? I don't know how he does it. It's enough, though, for us to know that he does. And here's a help to me, because if you actually think about it, we need this kind of God if we're going to pray as we should. 
if your God is only sovereign and not personal, then he's not going to want to hear your prayers. Why would he? He has a plan already. If your God is personal but not sovereign, he'll hear you, but he can't do anything. He can't answer them. But if your God is sovereign and personal, if you have a father at your side and a king on his throne, if in God you have a sympathetic friend and a sovereign Lord, then he'll bend down to hear you, and then he'll get up and do something about it. He can. And because the believers grasped that, they, they prayed for big stuff, improbable stuff, stuff that only a sovereign God can answer. Verse 29 and 30, they say this, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Striking that in this case anyway, they don't pray for the persecution to stop. It's not wrong to pray for. See that elsewhere in scripture. But they pray for something even more unlikely. They pray for boldness in the face of persecution. They pray that the God who is sovereign might speak into their hearts courage. And probably some of us can relate to that. Do you feel fearful when you think about telling people about Jesus? You're in a coffee shop, you see someone over there, you think, I should talk to them. I should ask them if I can pray for them. You're sitting across a dinner table from a neighbor, you think, I want to ask them what they think about Jesus. And as soon as that thought comes, in comes fear. And boldness in those moments can feel almost impossible. Not if you have a sovereign God. If you have a sovereign God, then nothing is impossible <laughs> that he calls us to do. Nothing. It doesn't matter how timid we are by nature. It doesn't matter how fearful we are in the moment. It doesn't matter if by gifting we feel like I'm not an evangelist. If the Lord can make the sun rise in the east, and if he can call the stars out, and if he can, from a thousand years ahead, thread history just to where he wants it, then he can make boldness rise in our hearts when we ask him. And the same thing is true for every other impossible situation that might come to mind right now. There's not a family member that comes to mind right now in this room that God cannot save. There's not a pain in this room that God can't give grace to endure. There's not a sin in this room that God cannot conquer, whether gradually or immediately. He wants to hear. He wants to hear you pray and ask for the big stuff. And then he holds all authority in heaven and on earth to do what seems impossible for you. This is fresh for me this morning because 16 years ago, I started praying for two of the dearest people in my life because that's when God saved me. And so I started praying for them. They're going to get baptized this morning. Not here. <laughs> Somewhere else. Out of state. 16 years. So sovereignty doesn't mean immediate, but it does mean that the impossible, what seemed to me impossible, becomes possible. Number two. Pray boldly, that's one. Number two, God is sovereign, so take action. 
If some people hear about God's sovereignty and they become prayerless, probably a lot more people hear God's sovereignty and they become passive. They don't dream much. They don't take many risks. They kind of treat God's sovereignty as a reason to maintain the status quo. Unless he changes stuff, I'm just going to kind of drift. I've seen this in my own life, sometimes hide behind the familiar Christian language of waiting for an open door. Okay, that's a biblical phrase. It's a good phrase. The Apostle Paul prays for God to open doors, that kind of thing. But sometimes, see if you resonate with this, sometimes I have acted as if, as if God opens doors mainly as I sit back and watch rather than as I pray, step forward, and push on a door to open. See if any of these situations ring true for you. These all come from this guy. You want to engage with a neighbor, develop a relationship, but instead of like going up to their door or calling them on the phone, you just hope you'll run into them. You know you need to have a hard conversation, confronting somebody about something maybe, or just sharing how something landed on you. But instead of making it happen, planning a time, again, you just kind of hope circumstances line up so that it, ah, here's an open door. You know you need to confess some sin. But instead of getting on the phone with your DNA saying, hey, we've got to talk about something, you kind of just wait for circumstances to seem perfect and for the courage to arise in your heart to do it. Sometimes I have used the sovereignty of God to excuse myself from these kinds of uncomfortable obedience. That's not how the believers in our passage handled God's sovereignty. If anybody was facing a closed door, they were. The most powerful leaders among their people said, don't talk about Jesus, don't do it. But what did they do? They remembered that God is sovereign. They dreamed and they prayed about what he might be pleased to do. And then while the door still seemed closed, they went out and acted. Verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And they trusted that God would work in his sovereignty, not before they went forth, but precisely as they went forth. And if you look into church history, then you'll find many of the people who did the most for God in this world were most deeply gripped by the fact that God is sovereign. Christians who have believed down deep that they have a sovereign God, have built hospitals and founded orphanages and ended slave trades and launched reformations and sailed across the world to speak of Jesus to those who had never heard his name. And in so many of those cases, the door seemed closed until they prayed and put a shoulder into it. They didn't always know, and we won't always know, if God is going to prosper the plan. They don't know that. God is sovereign doesn't mean he definitely will do whatever I try to do. Here's what it means. It means he can do it, no matter how weak you are. It means he can use little old me to do great things for his name. Not before, but as I step out. Okay, sometimes he does it before. (laughs) But often, we may not feel the boldness until we start speaking. We may not see the door open until we pray and take some courageous steps. So what is it for you? What's an ambition that burns in your heart? Or what is an act of obedience that you know the Lord is calling you to make, but you feel held back by fear? The door seems closed. 
Maybe you want to start a ministry or foster or adopt a child or knock on a neighbor's door or confess something embarrassing. Don't simply wait for circumstances to seem perfect. Instead, dream. Feel free to dream. Pray to your sovereign God and then step forward believing that he might just wield and show his sovereignty as you act. Number three, pray boldly, take action, and now God is sovereign, so draw near to him. Draw near to him in your suffering. Come close to him in your grief. The prayer of Acts 4, it takes place in the midst of pain. This is a suffering prayer, right? And isn't it striking that in that spot, the believers draw near explicitly to a sovereign God. Probably a lot of us in this room, sovereignty isn't the first thing we'd reach for. Maybe God's love, maybe God's mercy, maybe God's sympathy, which is totally right. Those are precious things in suffering. We need to know them. But why did these believers in their suffering, in this case, draw near to a sovereign God? Why might we? Why is sovereignty a reason to come close to God? One reason, we'll say two reasons. One of them is because they knew that only a sovereign God can take the pain that they feel and to turn it for good. Only a God sovereign over pain can use pain for good. So go back to Good Friday now. The God we serve was able to take the worst moment in history the worst moment, and there cannot be a worse moment than Jesus hanging from the cross. He took that worst moment and made it into a moment we're singing about this morning, <laughs> that we will sing about forever. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. That will be eternity's song, and it came from the worst moment. And these believers knew that if God can do that at the cross, then he can do it anywhere for anyone in any situation, no matter how deep the sorrow or how great the loss. Which does not mean, hear me, that we will always be able to see what he's doing, especially not right away. Maybe down the road we can look back and say like, yeah, I can see some of what God was doing there. Not always though. But we do not need to see that God what the purposes of God are in our pain to know that there surely are purposes. Instead, what do we need to see? We need to see Jesus dying on a cross, and then we need to see that tomb empty on Sunday morning and say that is what God does with pain and suffering. And if God can do that with the worst pain and suffering, then he can do it for mine, and he will do it for mine as I trust him. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are meant to be the great interpretive key to all pain, especially when it feels most confusing, when we feel most bewildered. That is supposed to be the great shining light saying there's purpose here, even if we don't see it. And then second, so they knew that only a sovereign God can take the wrongs done against us and turn them for good. They also knew that in the meantime, he is not far away. He is not far. That is one of the great myths about the sovereignty of God is that it makes him distant and uncaring. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
Who is this sovereign God? He is not only the God on Good Friday who made that worst moment and turned it into a moment to sing about. He's also the God who felt that Friday's deepest pain. I would have expected a sovereign God to remain aloof from suffering, to remain aloof from pain, to work out a plan, sure, maybe even a really good plan, but to do it from a high throne. In his sovereignty, our Lord took on flesh. In his sovereignty, he took that prophecy from Psalm 2 and laid it on his own shoulders. This is what he's doing in his sovereignty, not under compulsion, but with almighty power. In his sovereignty, our God became a Lord with scars on his hands and feet. So when you think about the sovereignty of God, don't think simply about a king on his throne, but think about a king on his cross. Think about Jesus. Jesus is the face of our sovereign God. So go back with me now. As we close, go back with me to my friend, the one I mentioned at the very beginning. Some of you know where this story goes. After that second proposal, he and his wife set out for Japan. They, they set out to raise their support, and after a couple of years, they were ready, stuff packed, ready to go. Just had one final training in, in Colorado before they flew overseas. And then the unthinkable happened. Because as their van was going through a construction zone in Colorado, they came to a stop and the semi-truck behind them didn't. And all five, my friend and his wife and their three kids, died there on the scene. Which I know is really weighty. I can remember where I was when I got the call and fell to my knees. And obviously my grief was just a drop compared to the grief of my friend's parents, my friend's wife's parents, and all the other loved ones in their lives. Maybe you and I can dimly imagine some of the sorrows, the shock that they felt and that they still feel eight years later. And maybe we would expect, we would imagine that they would look upon those five lives lost, those five missionary lives lost, and they would count it all a senseless, meaningless tragedy. That would be understandable. But by a miracle of grace, they didn't. They believed that somehow the sovereign God they loved had not left his throne and had also not left them. That he was at the very same time sovereign and near and was working things out far beyond what they could see. And so they were upheld by him. They found strength from a sovereign God to ask in court for, quote, the maximum allowable grace for the truck driver who did that and testified that they were not super Christians but that they were held up by a super God. And then a few years later, my friend's father even wrote this in an article. This is right under a heading labeled the sovereignty of God. God has been orchestrating events beyond our vision God has used the story of the Powell's family. He used it to immediately call two families to be goers to the mission field. One family's in Japan and the other's in Ireland. 
Even in the worst circumstances, God never stops working. Even if you do not see it, he is working. And as I share those words, I certainly don't mean to imply, and this father certainly didn't mean to imply, that embracing the sovereignty of God makes suffering easy. It does not. The sovereignty of God does not remove sorrow and weeping. It does not take away confusion and darkness. It often does not shorten the grieving process. Remember, my friend's dad wrote that years later, not days later. Only then was he able to see some of what God is doing. But embracing God's sovereignty does assure you of this, that however deep and whatever suffering you're facing today or however deep the suffering is that you will face tomorrow, it does not run too deep for your sovereign God to understand. He is a Lord acquainted with sorrow. And it does not run too deep for him to take and somehow in his timing turn for your good. So under a sovereign God, pray boldly and take action. And then when the suffering comes, draw near to him and know him as your near and good God. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you reveal what you are like to us. We don't make it up. We couldn't make it up. We might, if we imagined a God, we might imagine you as powerful, as almighty. We would not imagine that in your power, you would take on our own flesh and come and in the person of your son be crucified for sinners. But so you did. And so I pray that you would give grace. There's so many different people in here, so many different kinds of hearts that this lands on. You would give grace to take what you say in your word, to humbly open ourselves to all you reveal of yourself, and to find strength and beauty arising from your sovereignty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.